0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to City Church. I appreciate you being here. And today we're going to be continuing in our sermon series, "Justice for All, where we're working through Jubilee and the concepts of it that run from Leviticus all the way through to Revelation. And today uh, we get to talk about probably uh, one of the more interesting but uh, scattered portions of the text, which is perfect for my state of mind today just perfect to be going scattered and have the ability to go off in multiple rabbit trails. It's just excellent right now, okay? See, today we're talking about the way in which uh, Jubilee starts to pop up in the prophets. What happens in the prophets? And we're going to also, just for fun, not talk about the prophet that talks about Jubilee the most, which is Isaiah. We're just not going to talk about him today. We're talking about other prophets. And so that's awesome. Jubilee starts to pop up, and concepts that are built into the Levitical code start to pop up in the prophets relatively quickly. Now, fun things are happening. Whenever the people of Israel were following God in the Levitical code, and they were living within their land, it was super easy to see how Jubilee applied to them as a culture. They understood it very well. They knew that they could do and say certain things, they could release people every seven years as necessary, they could give the land rest every seven years, and they could return the land every 49. They understood this. This process makes sense because they were currently living within the land. They had access to it, right? And that concept that they would have access to the land of Israel was one that was built into who Israel was. It was part of their national identity that they would have this land. It was theirs, given to them by their creator, and that he had promised it to their forefather and that they would have this as an everlasting gift. This is what they thought that the covenant meant, the covenant with Abraham. They assumed that they would never not have a time where they had no access to their land. But then weird things started happening. And the people of Israel started to be hit on all sides by multiple enemies. And some of the tribes of Israel started to get taken away and pulled away and taken into captivity. And then just the lower half was left. And then some more tribes started getting taken away and they got pulled out. And eventually the entire people of Israel were pulled away from their land. And they were sent into exile. They were taken captivity by Babylon. And this captivity pulled them away from the promises they thought their God had given them. Their king saw his sons have have their eyes killed before him, before his eyes were put out. Their dynasty ended. The land that was promised in Abraham was no longer in their control, but given over to foreigners who had no right to it. And if you think that breeds a good ability for them to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, they probably didn't see that at that point. It seemed as if the promises God had given them were breaking apart and were not uh, going to happen. And this caused them to go through some crises of faith. Now, good news. There's good news in this. Because one thing that we can see as God is revealing himself in the Old Testament, it's the fact that his revelation was not a one-time thing that he did, that he proclaimed one thing, and that's all the people had to live off of. From then on, he would give them a portion of the plan that he had laid out before time began. And he would tell them parts of it. And then as time went on, he would give them a little bit bigger of a glimpse as to what it means. And these glimpses that he would give through his prophets, he would often uh, expand on what they understood to have happened before. They would gain more insight into what God was doing whenever he did things like lay down parts of the Levitical Code. Or they would learn more about how his nature functions, like who he is. And so over time, God would reveal more and more of himself as he is sort of building to something. I don't know what. He's crescendoing out somewhere, but he's not hit the crescendo yet, okay? He's building. His revelation is progressing as the Old Testament moves forward, as time moves forward, right? And the people's understanding of what God was doing in the Levitical code, in the Deuteronomy codes, in these different codes that happened, they began to catch further glimpses of what God is doing because of the words of his prophet. And they started to see that the words that were written in Leviticus, the words that mattered, had meaning greater than they had originally assigned. You see, Jubilee was not just about the people having access to their land at all times and people gaining back the access to the land that God had given them. Jubilee points to something about God's nature. It points back to what he's done before, and it points forward to what he's going to do in the future. And they began to see and understand that there's this kind of, I want to use a big word, eschatological concept, this end times concept, this fullness of time concept that Jubilee points to. It's pointing to something that's going to happen in the future. It was a glimpse, seen through glass darkly, of the glory of what God was going to do. And the, the, and the prophets, as they began to see what was happening in Israel, and as they were proclaiming the words that God was giving to them, as these prophets were speaking and writing, they began to illuminate more just what this concept could mean to the people of Israel. Okay, We're going to start out. We're going to bounce through a couple of different prophets, okay? We're going to start with Micah, because Micah, uh, timeline-wise, roughly contemporary to Isaiah and one of the earlier prophets. He's writing before the fall of Jerusalem, before Babylon had come through and conquered. In verse 10 of chapter 4, Micah says this, "'Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued.'" And check this out. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now, we say redemption a lot in the church. And we think of it just in the same meaning as saved. But we have to remember that redemption throughout the Old Testament was tied to this concept of kinsmen redeemers. People who could come and whenever someone had fallen into a debt that they couldn't repay, your closest kin were able to come and literally purchase out your debt and free you from slavery if you were in slavery, or free your land if your land was taken from you. Redeemed has a very technical meaning. It means to actually purchase back a debt on behalf of your kin or your brothers. Okay? And it says that God will redeem Israel from the hands of their enemies when they are taken into Babylon. And so already, we see this concept that something's going to happen, Israel's going to end up in Babylon, and that God himself will function as their redeemer. He'll pay what is necessary to restore them to freedom, okay? Starting in Micah 5, chapters 1 through 5, we see what this is kind of going to look like, and we catch the first glimpse of there being some figure tied to this concept of redemption, or tied to this jubilary concept. An individual that is bigger than just a regular kinsman, someone who is different and greater, and who can do more. In verse 5, chapter 1, it says, Now muster your troops, O daughters, uh, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. The siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Go. Turn page. But you, O Bethlehem O Bethlehem, Ephraith, You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come from me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from the old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." So interesting. Fun note, just really quick at the beginning of this, the Micah section. uh, In 4.10 it says, Writhe and groan, a daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. It brings up this concept of birth pangs. Labor happening, right? That there's something that's going to be happening, and these birth pangs are going to cause some weird things to happen. And one of the things is that they're going to end up in Babylon, right? And then we skip forward just a smidge. And we see this person from Bethlehem, this small little town, uh, one who's going to be the ruler of Israel, and they say who is coming from old, from ancient of days. So one who's been around for a long time. Then it ties out this. Check this out. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, whenever the time has come for those labor pains to end. This ruler will appear. Sort of like when the fullness of time had come, something will happen, right? Once this pregnant pause ends, he will appear. And he'll be great, he'll be godly, he will be the one who restores peace amongst the people of Israel, right? So we get this weird tie together, this concept of redemption tied to a person. We're going to move forward. Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah working with one of the kings of Israel, a man who uh, is, I believe, going to be the last king of Israel. And he has been calling out the king for the wicked ways of the city, for the wicked ways of Jerusalem. And it says this in chapter 8 of verse 34 The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. After King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant, that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed them and then set them free. Fun story. All right. So they obeyed them and set them free weird. So they declare this release of captives. The king sees that God is uh, not happy with the state of Israel, we'll say. And so he declares this release of captives. Uh, When did we see a release of captives pop up in the past before? Exodus. Exodus, right? And Leviticus, right? A release of slaves, He declares this favorable year of the Lord and calls for release. He sees there's something wrong with what they're doing. And he tries to bring back his own justice. It says, and they all obeyed, right? Sort of. Did it pop back up yet? Turn it off. I want you back on. There we go. Verse 11. But afterwards they turned around and took back the male and female slaves. They had set free and brought them into subjugation as slaves. And so the slaves who had been released, they said, no, we're joking, and brought them back in. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made myself a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying at the end of seven years, each of you must set free uh, the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and who has served you for six years. You must set him free from your service, but your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty. Proclaiming the year of liberty is literally proclaiming jubilee, okay? Each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjugation to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty Everyone to his brother and his neighbor. And behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. I love the way that in Christ we see the love and blessing and goodness of God. And we have to remember, though, that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. The God who Jesus is also proclaimed these words. He takes seriously whenever people ignore him. And the people saw fit to literally covenant with him. From what I can tell in Jeremiah, there's nowhere where God demanded they re-covenant and re-release slaves again. And then... There's definitely nowhere where it says it's cool for you to promise God something and then take it back. It's kind of uncool, right? And we see that because of the people's choice and failure to disobey, it says God literally released them to the sword famine and plague and allowed them to become a horror amongst the earth. When it says release, it's the same word. He just literally let go. That I've been holding back. I'm not holding people back anymore. And then we see Israel fall into captivity, into Babylon. But remember, this was already foretold. People already knew it was going to happen. Micah was foretelling it, and I promise you Isaiah was saying it too. (laughs) I can't tell you about it yet. We'll talk about it next week. But I promise you this is not a new concept. The people had this concept that they would be taken into captivity eventually. God knew it was going to happen. He knew that his people would choose not to obey, and he knew at some point he would release his grip and allow the world to function as it functions without him holding back sin. In Jeremiah 31, so actually before the prophecy we just heard about, we see this. It says in Jeremiah 31.10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the coastlines far away. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. And so already, even before people understand that this scattering is going to happen, God is already promising, yeah, you're going to scatter, but I will bring you back. This redemption is already discussed. This promise is already discussed. The fact that this would be a, full, uh, a forever thing, this exile would be forever, is already nil. God has already said, no, I will gather you back as my people. All right? The Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands of his enemies. Redemption again. Interesting. The people are going to be scattered because of their sin but God himself will do the redeeming he will pay what is necessary to bring his people back to him they shall come and sing aloud on the height of zion they shall be radiant over the goodness of the lord over the grain the wine the oil over the old and young or over the young of the flock and the herd their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the souls of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. The goodness God promises is good. Doesn't that sound good? I can't wait to sit in he promises this knowing what the people would do. Knowing exactly what's going to happen to us three chapters later. He promises he will ransom and redeem his people and bring them out of their sorrow. In Ezekiel 46, or in Ezekiel itself, this weird thing pops up. So Ezekiel's having all of these visions, okay? He's having a ton of visions. Ezekiel, super fun book. Read it if you ever just want to like, have your mind blown at like random things that are happening. What is this that's happening? Why is he walking around this giant temple with a measuring rod? I don't get it. Everything is lots of numbers. It's awesome. Also, super large amounts of angels. It's like, whatever, just showing up. People everywhere. What's happening, okay? Ezekiel is having this vision. And in this vision, he sees this prince, he calls him. There's this prince. And this prince, uh, it's very hard to get into, but just some of the things that the prince does, you begin to realize that he has identified wholly with God okay but also he identifies wholly with the people at one point it says that the prince is going to enter into the gates of the temple with the people and the gate that he's walking in is the common person's gate he's walking in with the common people okay but he also identifies heavily with god for some reason and he's royal so this is a prince he's a royal person not a priest but it says that this royal prince will be the one who's offering all sacrifice on behalf of all the people which was not a prince's job it was a priest's job right I mean, sometimes we saw royalty in the Old Testament offer sacrifices, but it was super rare, and it was not their normal job. Regular offering was done by, by the priests themselves. In verse 16 for some reason, it starts to dive into this concept of the prince and his sons. And it says, thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. This prince is the one who is building up an inheritance, And he will distribute it as he feels well. And he will own everything on the year of liberty. And he will then give it out to his sons and daughters as an inheritance. Weird. Kind of creepy just a little bit. I'll throw it out there. All right. It will be his by inheritance. It will be his sons and daughters by inheritance how great is God that we could become the sons and daughters of God. Just throwing it out there. This prince who is godly and manly will declare liberty, pull everything back to himself and then distribute it out to his sons and daughters. Weird. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property so that none of my people will be scattered from his property. Basic concept. This prince, what he does, will not destroy what has gone before. It will not force out anybody. Instead, it is promising a place for anyone and everyone who are God's people. And then we get this really weird one, guys. And I have to talk about it, and I apologize. I'm not a really big numerology person in the Bible. I don't like it. It's kind of annoying to me whenever it pops up. But there's just some really interesting stuff that happens, okay? Uh, in Daniel. Have you guys ever seen the weird things that people like? Have you ever met anyone who's, like, super into left-behind stuff, and they have the big boards behind them, where they've got giant numbers scribbled across the board, and this is what's happening on four days. And on day 7.2, this is what's going to happen. Then we know in 9.47... It just gets weird. I don't like that stuff. But there's one thing that's slightly interesting to me. I'm just going to toss it out a little bit. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, someone starts declaring these sevenses. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Seventy sevens. 70 weeks or 70 weeks of years, Right? When was the last time you saw sevens referred to? Jubilee calendar, right? And then every seven sevens, every seven years was a Sabbath year, right? Every seven sevens was a jubilee year, right? And so 10 jubilee years is what he's talking about here. In ten jubilee cycles. a decreed for the people in the holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. And then this person is giving Daniel this vision says, no one understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. It's a weird concept. Uh, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So basically from the time Babylon is no longer in captivity, controlling everything, whenever the people are returned from exile and allowed to start rebuilding what God has given them in their land. From that time, there will be, uh, it says, 69 Sabbath years. 69 Sabbath weeks. uh, 69, yeah, just shy of 70, right? And it says from that time, this will occur. Weird thing, and I have to toss that here, in Ezra, whenever we read through Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, in Ezra, we see three separate decrees that are given by the kings that are ruling over the people of Israel, whenever they're not in Israel anymore. It's the people who have basically destroyed Babylon and then destroyed Assyria. Uh, No, wait, no, wait, Assyria is the last one. My brain's here. I'll get it at some point. The people who are currently reigning over top of the people of Israel, who are no longer the Babylonians, but the people who are in charge. Anazerxes is the guy that we're talking about now. It's the son of the guy that was being talked about in Ruth. Nope. Nope. No, different person. Wow, my brain is not working right now. This is what happens when you stop sleeping. I apologize. Go on. Let me come back. Let me gather my thoughts. Ignore that last statement. Different Xerxes. All right. this ruler, who was the person over top of Babylon, not Babylon anymore, but over top of the people of Israel when they're in captivity, OK? In Ezra 7, he kicks out this decree, and he tells Ezra that he can go back to Jerusalem, and he can go back in, and it's in the seventh year of Anaxexes. He can go back into Jerusalem. He can take back people with him, and he can take back the treasures that had been taken out, all of the gold and the silver and the temple treasures that had been taken from whenever Babylon went and took them into captivity to begin with. And so this group of exiles returned to their homeland, not just as scattered people who had been coming back, because that had been happening for a while now, but actually returning with the right of the king and returning with all the temple treasures and things that had been taken from them. They're basically restoring themselves to their land, And then as you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, they start rebuilding their city, right? In Ezra 7, we see the seventh year of Anaxerxes. We actually know when that happened in history. It was right around 458. I say right around because there's a smidgen of dating controversy as to when years started for people back then. So we don't know if it was our 457, 458, or 459 B.C. Sweet. Now, who can do math for me? Who's got an, a calculator on them? You got calculators? You all hold phones. I'll just say it out loud. It's fine. All right? So what is 7 times 7? Times 10? 490. Sweet. All right? So does anyone know what, just off the top of their head, uh, 458 minus 490 is? We'll get a negative number. My apologies for that. Huh? Negative what? 32? Interesting. Oh, but wait a minute. There's something else on here. Did you know there was no year zero? It went right from 1 BC to 180 because for some reason people just didn't figure zero was the greatest year to start whenever you're trying to figure out when Jesus' birthday is. When was he born? Zero. They didn't like that. So they started on one, okay? It so went right from 1 BC to 180. So you've got to remove a year from that calculation we did. So 31, all right? Interesting. Anyone here know about whenever Jesus started his ministry? Right around 30 AD, right? 26 to 30, depending on how you count it, Uh, which is kind of funny because later on he gets into a whole bunch more numbers, a whole bunch more different weeks, which kind of at one point jumps out to 26 AD, which is like the start of it. Then he says there's a half year, which is three and a half years, which is 30 and a half And then another three and a half years, that seventy will be done and sin will be ended. The transgressions will be paid for. I would be interested to know if Jesus started his ministry in 3080, and then he was baptized by John the Baptist, then he spent 40 days in the wilderness, and then he went and began preaching in Galilee. I'd be interested to know how many months he was preaching in Galilee before he stepped into a synagogue and proclaimed the year of Jubilee. It interests me. It's kind of fun. It pops up right in that timeline. Everyone is looking for someone to come and save by this point. They're expecting that God is going to redeem his people. They're expecting that he's going to overcome sin. And Daniel's expecting it to happen relatively soon. And then he hears, now nah, you've got to wait a while. <laughs> but it'll happen. And Daniel, when he's looking at this, and he's trying to see who it's like and what it's like, I didn't even put it in here. Man. Daniel at one point, whenever he is seeing this apocalyptic figure that he's expecting is going to come and redeem, he sees it and he says, look, there's one coming who's like a son of man. Weird. What title does Jesus take on himself? Jesus is the son of God and son of man. Man. For some reason... People, as they are studying and learning about Jubilee, they begin to see a couple things. It's going to be this time whenever the people of Israel, they think, will be released from their transgressions and their sins, will be released from their captivity and restored to their rightful place. And then they begin to tie into it this concept of a coming anointed one or Messiah, one who would act as a kinsman redeemer, the one who would actually pay the price necessary to redeem the people from their sins. We'll talk about that more next week as well. And they saw that this would be coming and happening about like this weird time period. Then we caught some glimpses. There's just some light glimpses that we'll be catching that he may be doing more than just for Israel. That prince who is doing things not just for the people of God, but for his own sons and daughters. There's this concept that it might be for more than just the people of Israel. Do you see what's being built up to here? What God had been proclaiming in Leviticus, this law that we might look backwards and see, like, what does it matter? It's kind of weird stuff. It's dealing with slavery. It's dealing with people having houses and stuff that, like, they can return to whenever they want. It's people having eternal property. This concept is actually pointing back to who God is whenever he returned his people and pulled them away from slavery and redeemed them away before. It's pointing to what he's going to do again whenever he's going to redeem everything. We're going to see in the coming weeks that as God was progressively revealing himself, even at this point, as the prophets are speaking, they still don't quite get what God is doing. We're going to read in Isaiah even more about what he's doing next week. And then following that, we're going to see exactly what he's done. You see, we saw before, I think it was in Micah, whenever they were talking about this time whenever Israel would be going through these labor pains, whenever they would be going through this hardship, and they were waiting for this one to come who would come whenever these labor pains had ended. We see it pointing forward to this one who's going to rule and reign and restore everything. And we know this. We know that whenever the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The labor pains were pointing to the coming of the Messiah. The coming of Christ, the coming of the Redeemer, the one who would ransom Israel, the one who would redeem them from their state, and not just Israel, but the entire world. The one who would declare a final year of jubilee, proclaim liberty, and restore things to their rightful state. This is what we wait for. This is the message that we remember whenever we are considering Jubilee. It's all about who? Jesus. It's all about him and what he's doing and what he's done. Everything is all about him and who he is and what he's done. You guys, I was fighting today to try and figure out what, my goodness, should be our takeaway from this sermon. Because, all right, yeah, so sweet, it's pointing at Jesus. What should we do about it? And there's one very obvious answer to that. We should bow down before him and worship him because of how good and how great he is. You want your life, helpful life lesson for the week? Bow before your creator who redeemed you, who ransomed you back from the grave, who purchased you back, who destroyed death, who has overcome it and has victory over it, and who will return again, and there will be loud trumpets blasting, which is fun because literally jubilee means ram's horn. He will proclaim complete freedom and release and he will, complain, complete, he will proclaim full restoration of the world back to what it was supposed to be before we went and messed it up, before we indebted ourselves to sin, death, and slavery. He will purchase us back from the ones that we have made ourselves masters, who we have made our masters. And guys, we'll get to live with him forever. What's your takeaway? Praise him. He is good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Father, you are a good God who has done so much that we cannot begin to even imagine it. Lord, we see what it would be like to release our debts. And Lord, we can't even begin to imagine all of the debt that you have released in us. Lord, it is so different that we cannot begin to understand it. But Lord, we can bow before you and praise you and thank you for it. Lord, we can worship you because of who you are and what you've done. Father God, may we do so today. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. May we understand who you are. And Lord God, may we glorify you because of it. Lord, you are glorious and you are wonderful. It is in your name we pray. Amen. I have one more quick takeaway. One more quick takeaway. In Luke... Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And at the end of his teaching, he proclaims one thing. He says this He says, as you're praying to your God, remember this pray that he would forgive you as you forgive those who are indebted to you. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You want to take away? If you see how good your God is and what He has released you from, what should you hold over those around you? Nothing. If He can forgive you for your indebtedness, what can't you forgive? Because you're forgiven far less than He has. Make sense. Sorry, I got another takeaway. Is
1: it fun? Yeah, I'm on it's fun. Cool. Right. Yeah, it's so all good. So uh, actually, that. Um, so last night. Um, actually got some sleep, which was weird, Um, but I I woke up at uh, around, like, four, and um, it felt like God was, like, laying something on my heart, and uh, usually it's because the baby's kicking me, and he's mad that I'm, like, near Chelsea, Uh, but this time, Chelsea's on the couch, so it was legitimately just in there by myself, farting like crazy. It was really nasty, but um, uh, as I I was laying there, you know, I was realizing that God had really laid on my heart some people that I had really... I've been struggling with in the sense of how can I help this person? How can I be there for this person? And then God kind of did this thing where He's just like, "Why is it up to you?" You know, He's like, "Are you drawing them to you, or are you drawing them to me?" And there's times where your expectations are wrong. And then as I was sitting there praying, and God's kind of you know revealing what it means to what it looks like Him, whom He is. Um, I was reminded. Uh, so typically. Uh, it's big Aaron, big Lambert, that uh, he'll send me, like, a message of something he's going through scripture. And it's, it's crazy to me how um, just the Holy Spirit works, right? I mean, somebody like Vince or myself or Chris or things like that that have studied theology, that have gone through schooling from it, you know, when they come to me about something that's a theological stance, I'm just like, oh, that's pretty profound and that's good. But then the way the Holy Spirit works is that here's someone like Aaron uh, that uh, he's not studying this, he's not schooled in this, and he's coming up with these things. I'm just like, dude, this is Johannian like, theology, this is rich stuff, but it didn't come from him this week. It came from his little boy. Uh, And so we were over at his house, and little Aaron comes running up. He grabs me by the finger and takes me into his room. He's like, you're going to play Legos with me, essentially. So we're playing stuff like that. And uh, I leave and come back out because we were doing our Bonhoeffer book and going over and stuff like that. And he comes back out again and grabs my hand. And Aaron was like, big Aaron was just like, you got to tell him no. Right now he has these expectations, and he's demanding these expectations from you. Um, but he doesn't understand that that doesn't just mean you get what you want. I didn't see much of it then. And then last night as I was thinking and praying for these people and uh, as God was revealing in me what needed to be broken in myself, that I need to be leading people to depend on God and to be praying to God to deal with these people, not myself to fix them or to uh, be that God in their life, but to the point them to the God that has changed all of our lives. And I thought of that little instance as how often are we running and we're grabbing on the God saying, no, this is the direction I want you to go. This is how I want you to roll the life. This is how I want you to do things with me. And then finally, God's like, No, this is how we're going to do it. And we just throw a tantrum and we get mad because these are the expectations that we have. And the same thing even happens in uh, Christ's sermon and throughout all of Scripture. As we read some of these passages, we're like, Okay, 70 times 7, this is what this is, this is what this is. We try to get this date, we try to get these numbers. Uh, even to the New Testament, where you have Peter's like, All right, I'm going to go and cut this dude's ear off, let's go. You know, the Messiah's come, we're going to take this over. But our expectations that we have aren't what Christ has kind of told us is whom he is or what he is or what he's doing. Um, and oftentimes, you know, you'll read these apocalyptic things, and I, it's one of my favorite fields of studies, and one of the things to keep in mind is to not get worked up about the numbers, but why are those numbers there and focus more on what is the point that it's pointing to. Seven is the number that represents perfection. It's a perfect amount of timing. Two is witnessing. So a perfect amount of witnessing. And so, but if we allow our expectations to determine what we want Scripture to say, we can walk away with the left-behind book. Uh, we can walk away with arguably rapture theology. You know, we can walk away with things that aren't necessarily accurate, you know. And like I said, rapture theology, I, I tend to be personally against it. I don't think it exists. Uh, it's a newer theology. It doesn't mean that there isn't any evidence for it. Um, in my their defense, I think there's like two passages. But... My point is, is that don't allow your expectations to determine what Scripture says. Allow Scripture to transform you, and don't try to transform it to what you want, in the same sense in how we deal with each other. It's not my job, and it's not any of our jobs, to um, kind of put the expectations of what Christ says, this is what I'm expected to do, to put that on ourselves. He is God. We are not. And in the same sense, as we're looking at God, recognize the expectations that he says, is that, like, all I expect is that you follow me. All I expect is that... I'm giving this gift to you. Will you receive it? He's not demanding that you're perfect. He's saying I'm perfect. He's not demanding that you're flawless and without sin. He's saying I covered that. So what he's saying is all I expect of you is to sit there and say, do you want to partake in this with me? And so he breaks himself and he pours himself out for us. So as we go through this week, I just ask that pray to God um, for him to challenge the expectations that you want because he will. He'll reveal to you there's expectations that we have in all of our lives um, that are wrong. And then what happens is that he'll hand it back to you with a proper perspective. This idea that God cannot give to someone whose hands are full. Whatever you have that you're holding on to that you expect or that you demand, hand over to him because when your hands are empty, he can finally give it back. So meditate on that, think on that, and when you're ready, uh, feel free to come up and participate in communion.